We've been in this series for a little bit now, and um, some people have been asking, like, what is the kingdom of God exactly? Does Jesus actually define it at one point? Well, throughout what we've been learning so far in the series, Jesus describes the kingdom of God maybe perhaps more than he defines it, and there's a bit of a difference in that. Um, but essentially, kind of like a macro picture of what is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is what it is when this world, uh, lo- what the world looks like when God is in charge. It's what this world looks like when God is in charge. Now, is God in charge of our world today? Of course. Like, God oversees all things. He's in control. But right now, it's not fully. You know, we're in this now, but not yet. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is still coming. And yet we see glimpses of what it looks like when God is in charge of this world. It's important to note, please note this, that the kingdom of God living is not just a call to moral living. Um, It's not like a lifestyle choice that I'm going to say, I'm going to decide to be a good person in hopes that maybe God will like me more, or I'm going to decide just to be like this kingdom of God way sounds like a good way, as if, you know what, I decide to go on keto, or I want to be a marathon runner. You know, it's not just a lifestyle choice that we make. Um, I think following Jesus is actually a very high calling. And when we look at it, while uh, some people can be incredibly encouraged by it and go like, man, that's like the perfect example, I'm inspired to be like that. Um, Author N.T. Wright says, for as many people are as encouraged and inspired to follow Jesus, there's probably just as many who are discouraged and despaired by looking at his example, going, I can never follow that. You notice after listening to Darcy up here and, and Ruby sing, I'm like, I could do that. It's no problem. Next week, I'll just lead worship. And you'll find that I will fail miserably. It's because I can't do it. Or I can't play baseball like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I had to throw that in for any, any baseball fans here. I always do hockey, I'm, I'm told. So I just want to do something else a little bit different today. No one knows Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But he's an amazing player. Um, and it's like, you know, I watch him play for the Blue Jays, and I can just get up there and, and crack home runs. It's like, for as much as I may be encouraged to see that, I get discouraged when I actually try. But thankfully, thankfully, Jesus isn't saying that the kingdom of God is purely about our actions. It's not purely about just doing better and hoping for the best, but it actually talks about a transformation of our heart. And so as we talk about another aspect of the kingdom of God today, I want to look into another aspect of what the kingdom of God looks like. And to start, I want to introduce a girl to us who was born on August 26th, 1910, 112 years ago now, a girl by the name of Agnes Gonche Bohaxiu, born in North Macedonia. Now, uh, when Agnes's father died when she was eight years old, she became really, really tight with her mom. And although not from a wealthy family, she found that many times over her very simple table in her simple home, she found that she was sharing her meals with strangers, people she had never met before, and this was a regular occurrence. Her mother adopted a motto that she shared with her daughter, telling her to never eat a single mouthful unless you're sharing it with others. Becoming a nun at age 18, partially influenced by her mother's faith and the way she saw the world, um, Agnes traveled to Ireland to join the Sisters of Loretto Convent, and she changed her name there because it wasn't very easy to say in Ireland, so she changed her name there to something easier to pronounce uh, after a saint that she adored growing up. Sister Mary Teresa. Now, just six weeks after being in Ireland, she traveled to Calcutta to work as a teacher, working with kids in some of the city's poorest neighborhoods. She did this for over two decades, faithfully as a teacher, 
faithfully in some very poor, poor neighborhoods there. But she describes after two decades what happened to her was a call within a call. In other words, she had the call to go and be a teacher in some poor slums and areas in Calcutta. But it's there, according to biography.com, that she was riding on a train from Calcutta to the Himalayan foothills when Christ spoke deeply to her. And she felt him say to abandon her teaching work in the slums of Calcutta um, and to go and work serving strictly the city's poorest and sickest people. She also made her final vows with her convent, and so she changed her name from Sister Teresa to what we know her as now, Mother Teresa. She started her first very simple hospice in 1946, strictly for the chance to give the dying an opportunity to die with dignity. And I love this. She says this. She says, By blood, I'm Albanian. By faith, I'm a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world. And as to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. I have this beautiful drawing of Mother Teresa hanging in my office. It's a reminder to me about the kingdom of God. And that the kingdom of God looks and is described in many different ways. But when a heart is orientated towards the kingdom of God instead of the, the kingdom of this world, we all draw to it and it reminds me of what this looks like. It's a tangible expression of someone whose life and heart was oriented that way. She admitted throughout her whole life that she didn't have much, but she had a willing heart and was willing to use every ounce of her being to help the marginalized around her. And so I was thinking about her life and and her testimony and thinking about us today. And I want to just give us the opportunity and ask us, how is our heart orientated towards the kingdom of God, especially as it pertains to the marginalized and the poor around us? We are not living in Calcutta. We're living in Canada. It's quite different here. But at the same time, we know that we have people who are marginalized in our culture everywhere. And I hope that through today, through looking at our scripture And through a story that are going to be shared, that we would understand that we are not just the privileged few who can live our lives however we want, but that we are all called to orient our heart towards the kingdom of God. Well, we're looking in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we're going to look in specifically chapter 25. If you have your Bible, you're more than welcome to open it. If you don't have a Bible or didn't bring it, all of the scripture is going to be on screen, so you can follow along on here for sure. We're going to start in verse 14 of chapter 25, and it starts off a little bit different because you're like, I don't get what he's saying here. Um, But Jesus is talking to his followers, and it starts off by saying, again, it will be like. Well, what is it? We don't know. But if we go back to the beginning of chapter 25, verse 1, it says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So then he describes something in there. Um, He talks about 10 virgins preparing for their bridegroom. It's kind of a a weird story. We're not going to go into all of that. Um, But through all of that, he gives another example. And so he says, again, it, meaning the kingdom of heaven. And he says this in verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to uh, to another, one bag each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. 
But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So we're going to read more of this. We're going to actually read quite a bit of scripture today, which I think is a good thing. But I want us to stop along the way, and I want to just make some notes as we go. First of all, I want to just observe a couple of things out of this. Number one, what we notice out of this parable is that at first glance, this parable might seem to be all about wealth. But as we dig a little bit deeper, the reality is that this parable is actually not really about wealth. Notice how the master leaves on a trip. Now, again, in this parable, we don't know where he's going or how long he's going to be gone for. It doesn't matter. The fact is that the the master is leaving on a trip, but we also know that he's very, very rich. He calls three servants together, and altogether he gives out eight bags. That's quick math on my part, because five plus two plus one is eight. You see that there? I am pretty smart. Anyway, uh, the Greek word here for bag is talent. So it's not just like literal bags of gold. The Greek word here is talent, and actually talent was an actual currency, just like the Canadian dollar or U.S. dollar. Um, This was an actual currency used in the New Testament culture. And a talent at that time was worth 20 years of an average salary. So, looking at Statistics Canada, I checked it out. The average salary in Canada last year, does anyone want to take a guess? Average salary? $65,000. Darren wins. Uh, Good job, Darren. Um, $65,000. So, altogether, times all this put together, the master is giving out to his servants $10 million by today's standards. That is a significant amount of money that he's just calling three servants to and just giving it out. So let's understand this. This is a lot of money. He's not just asking the servants to um, feed the cats and make sure the pipes don't burst while he's gone. That was for all of you prairie people who understand that. I guess, although it did get cold enough last year here, the pipes, some, some did burst, but it's not just menial tasks that he's asking. He's saying this is a significant amount of money and I want to give it to you He's entrusting a lot of money to his servants because he leaves. He doesn't check on them until he gets back. But notice here what happens, his response when he finally comes back. It says, after a long time, in verse 19, the master of those servants returned and he settled accounts with them. All right, come forward, guys. Come here. Let's go. I want to see how you did. In verse 20, the man who had received five bags of gold brought another, sorry, brought the other five. Master, he said, You entrusted me with five bags of gold, and see, I have gained five more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share my master's happiness. Now, this is what I mean here when I talk about it. It's actually not really about wealth. See, the master doesn't say how awesome it is that you have doubled my wealth. I had $10 million, you know, I'm, I'm more wealthy than I was when, when I left. And how awesome is that? What does he say to the servant? He says, you have been faithful with a few things. It's a lot of money. In the master's eyes, it's just a few things, but he's excited more about what he's done with the wealth instead of the accumulation of it. See, again, the parable is actually not really about wealth. The master cares much more of what is done with the wealth Verse 22, we move on to the second person with two bags. Notice how the master is happy with the first servant. Next, we read this. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, 
You entrusted me with two bags of gold, and see, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, if you think that's a little bit of deja vu, you're exactly right. Because the response from the masters is exactly the same, word for word, for the person with two bags as it was for five. This is hugely important to note. Notice that he doesn't say, uh, yes, I uh, thank you for that. It's not as much as what this guy did. But you know what? You've still done well, so good for you. High five, pat on the back. He says to him, well done. You have been faithful. There's no comparing here. There's just excitement. Again, understand this. The point of this parable is not a wealth-building strategy. It is a stewardship strategy. And we are entrusted to steward our talents well, however we are wired. Don't you find this sometimes that however we are wired and whatever we do in life, we often compare ourselves? I think to myself sometimes, you know what, like, man, I think I'm a good dad until I see this guy on Facebook or hear about this guy who is like so much better than me. But at the same time, you know what, I'm better than that dud who isn't so good. Or maybe, you know, we think, uh, I'm in school, and I, I want to do well. But you're constantly comparing yourself with other people. I remember being in grade 12 math, and I remember um, averaging about 94 to 95% all year. Now, that's one thing I'm like, yeah, bragging, good job, Jeff, you're smart. No, it wasn't, because there was three people ahead of me in class always who were in the 97 to 100% mark. And no matter how well I did in that class, it didn't matter to me because I wasn't number one. We're always comparing ourselves. Maybe you're a singer today or an, an artist. Maybe you're a writer. And you think, you know what? I'm probably better than this person, but I'm not quite as good as this person. It's so easy for us to play the compare game. But this parable isn't about comparing. The master is just as excited for the person with two bags, two talents, as he was and is for the person with ten, or sorry, with five. No comparing, just excitement. The point is, is whatever we are given, however we are wired, and with whatever gifts we have, the point is to, to go out and invest them instead of taking them in and hoarding them. Last month, Global News wrote an article reporting that the Canadian demand and hunger for underground bunkers has skyrocketed in the last two years. Probably not surprising, right? Maybe some of you are here and you're like, yeah, I'm one of them. Uh, great, awesome. One company uh, said that they have been receiving inquiries uh, into these uh, bomb shelters and bunkers at an average rate of uh, every one to two minutes. They're either getting a phone call or an email. Um, can you build us something? What do you have? Um, I want to live somewhere else. I want to be safe. But listen to this. Not only are they getting inquiries into the so-called normal underground shelters, you know, you think of this like pretty simplistic yet uh, like fortified place, but they're actually getting inquiries into luxury bomb shelters. Yes, that's an industry. Luxury bomb shelters. Look at this. This is a bomb shelter, friends. Um, I think I'm living in the wrong place. This is amazing. Um, they, have, they said that they offer stylish furniture, bedroom suites, hot tubs, and walk-in closets in underground bunkers. Who wouldn't want to live here? Like, this is like, man, if I'm going to be at the end of the world, I'm going to live it in style, right? This is amazing. 
Well, bomb shelters, no matter how they look, are defensive structures. For whatever may come, and as this company describes it, from asteroids to the Antichrist to Armageddon, we're here to protect. <laughs> I like their slogan. That's catchy. Um, don't know if it actually works, but it's great. From asteroids to the Antichrist Armageddon, we've got you protected. We see, if we're a follower of Jesus this morning, and if you're not, maybe you think of Christians this way, but if you are a Christian this morning, I think we have to admit that this can be our common attitude, can't it? This bunker mentality of just protecting ourselves from the world until Jesus comes and all is restored. You know, we think to ourselves, I just need to remain unpolluted by this world because it's just so dark. Or, I don't want to let a hurting world dictate how I spend my time, because my time is still my time. Or, why should I give my money to the poor? Most of them got themselves into their own mess anyway, didn't they? And so instead of taking the gifts that we have been given, our own talents, our own wealth, um, in whatever shape or form that takes from our master, and using them to bless the world, we hold our gifts tight and we use them for ourselves. But we see in this parable that hoarding is not a part of the kingdom of God's economics. Do we understand this this morning? Hoarding is not a part of the kingdom of God and the way he wants us to live in his economics. The principles of money operate much the same way as our gifts and talents that we've been given. They only are multiplied when they are used when they are invested, when we go out and do something with it instead of just digging a hole in our backyard. See, look at what happens when they're not. In verse 24, the third servant comes forward to the master. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so... I was afraid, and I went out, and I hid your gold in the ground. And see, you can imagine just pulling it up. Here is what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with some interest. And so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will would be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we may correlate this with saying that the master is God the Father, and he wants to give out lots of stuff to us. And so the one he doesn't, whoa, isn't this sound a little bit strong? The consequence of us not doing something, are we going to be thrown out into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? I want to hesitate from making that direct correlation. We just don't know. And we have to understand Jesus is talking about a parable here. So we can't make uh, straight lines and understand these things perfectly. But I do want to say we have to wrestle with this idea that there are consequences for us not going out and investing. There's something about this here that we have to understand that I don't think that we're supposed to be afraid of not doing something with things, but rather excited with the opportunity to go out and do something. 
So understand this. If the first thing to notice here about this parable is that it's much more than just wealth, the second thing to notice from this parable is who the talents are intended for. They're intended for the marginalized. How do we know this? Well, let's read on in the rest of this chapter. Verse 31, right after that parable, it says here this. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Well, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is freely saying here, we live in a very broken world. And the people who are to be blessed because of our talents are the people who are most hurt in the wake of the world's brokenness. That they're all over the place. And they come in many different uh, places in life. But the talents that we have and are to invest in are to be directed towards the marginalized and the poor. Jesus says this right here. Who are they for? He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. What's the common denominator of all of those? They're marginalized people. They're people in need who don't have on their own, and they need help. We have people who are marginalized in our culture all the time. Maybe these are the people that we avoid eye contact with at a red light as we see them walk on the meridian. Or maybe we pass by, especially in maybe in downtown Vancouver, we go on a date and we're just like, just walk on the other side of the street and get around them. It's the people that maybe we don't associate with. Maybe we look down and judge because they've committed a crime. But these are people in need. What's beautiful about Jesus' ministry is that he spent so much time with the poor and the marginalized. See, in the book of Luke, for instance, we read about the very first things that Jesus did in his ministry years. So he's 30 years old. He goes out and does ministry uh, in the world in three years. And these are some of the first people that he meets and ministers to. Someone possessed by a spirit, a lady dying from a fever, a man struggling with leprosy, and a paralyzed man, all who he heals and deals with. What do all of these people have in common? They're outsiders. They're in need of the kingdom of God. About uh, 800 years ago, in medieval times, um, 
Trading ships between Africa and Europe took place all the time, bringing all sorts of goods with them. But what they also brought in medieval times, especially in certain time periods, specifically this one here between 1346 and 1373, they brought more than their fair share of uh, ravaging plagues that killed in these years up to 60% of the European population. Can you imagine that? These ships coming from Africa, bringing plagues, and in no time at all, up to 60% of the population would have been decimated, wiped out. Well, in this time, a hospital began by Christians in Paris called the Hotel Dieu. My last name is Bruneau, so I can say that. It's very French. The Hotel Dieu. Um, now, although very humble, it was the first one, like I said, began by Christians um, to not take fees from anyone, but rather devoted themselves wholly to the poor and the needy. So in other words, there was other hospitals that were existing at the time, but they were kind of for the uh, bourgeoisie. They were for the upper class who paid lots of money to receive help. But a group of Christians said, we need to get health care out there to people, not charging a single penny, but because we love them and want to care for them. This hospital, the Hotel Dieu, uh, held enough beds to hold up to 1,300 people, but in their ambition to help people, often held over 3,500 people at one time. Some of these hospital beds, instead of having one person in them, they held six. Not because they were designed for it, but because the Christians wanted to help so many people. Now, we also know about pandemics more than they did then. We realize how fast they spread and, and what they can do to people. And so often, actually, it, it, it did a lot worse than better for what, um, what they were intending for. But here's what the Christians said then. Is that they said it felt better to care for the sick than to send them to die in the streets. They had their heart orientated toward the kingdom of God and in their intentions wanting to help people. See, in this life and in this parable, Jesus is declaring that part of living out the kingdom of God is orientating our hearts towards the poor and the marginalized and the needy. I still remember years ago, my oldest daughter, Reese, um, I think she was about six or seven at the time. Uh, we went into Vancouver and I remember going down Vancouver. It was quiet. I think it was about 9 o'clock in the morning, and um, she had to go pee. So, of course, uh, we stopped at a Tim Hortons, pulled over, let her go in, and then I think we got a donut and a hot chocolate for her to come out. I don't know if that was a reward for going pee, but, hey, it's like, you know, early morning, just spoiled my daughter a little bit. But I remember coming out, and as we did, I remember seeing across the street this gentleman who was sleeping in a sleeping bag all by himself with a few bags around him. And I remember myself just, just ready to put Reese in the car and go. And I remember her looking over there and going, Dad. I was like, yeah, there's someone sleeping over there. You're right, sweetie. And she goes, we need to get him something. And I was at first kind of like thinking about my daughter, seeing a man over there, and my initial reaction was, he's going to be okay. He's sleeping. Let's just go and be safe. But she was unrelenting. She said, we need to get him something. We need to get him a hot chocolate, a donut. We need to get him something. And she said, can I give mine? Can I give mine to him? And I just was like, oh, man, I need so much to learn from my daughter. So instead of taking hers and giving it, I went and got another one from inside. And we went over, and she was the one that put it by his feet, the hot chocolate and the donut in a bag. And then we walked back to the car, didn't want to disturb him, and we left. And I thought to myself, there's a heart that's orientated towards the kingdom of God. 
describing a beautiful way of how we are supposed to live. Now, I understand that in our world today, there's also this tension of this reality of, of a book that was written. It's called When Helping Hurts. Because of my saying from here, you know, we go out and we help every person who's in need and just give them money and just let them do with what they want. That's not what I'm advocating for at all. There is times when we know that people who are in addiction can often use their, their means of getting things and go often and use it for unhealthy things. But what I am saying today is that I think so many times we might be like I was that morning at Tim Hortons with my daughter and just be willing to just pass on by without even giving a second thought. I remember my regent prof one day saying uh, a couple of years ago, he said, my wife and I just went uh, down to Granville. We went to a play, and he said, this person just asked me for money, and I didn't know what to do. Should I help him? Because I know sometimes it doesn't help, but he needs money. And he said, so I just gave him 20 bucks. And you could tell some of the students in the class were like, Ross, don't do that. No, you can't. You've got to, da, da, da. You've got to set up structures and stuff. He's like, I know. It was just a knee-jerk reaction. I would want my knee-jerk reaction to be something that is orientated towards the poor more than just passing them by. Well, I want to invite up Darlene and Mariah because Darlene and Mariah are involved in what Andy was describing this morning called Langley Outreach. And it is a practical, um, very tangible way that we as a church and people help in serving the poor in our community. So come and share a little bit about how you guys have been involved. Well, good morning. I think what Andy shared in the video is just so amazing. He is such an incredible guy, and uh, just his heart for the poor is amazing. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of the Pancrats delegate. We're, uh, we've been involved with um, street ministry for about 20 years. We worked with Night Shift for a while, and then seven years ago, we've come across to um, Langley. I'm also... Uh, uh, involved with uh, mobile clinic. I'm a nurse and I volunteer on a mobile clinic in Surrey and in Langley. So that's kind of my, using some of my expertise, I guess. So I just wanted to um, say that the message this morning was just so powerful. You know, Jesus in his early ministry, even the, some of the first things that he did when he came back to Nazareth after being tempted in the desert, um, he went into the synagogue, he stood up to read, and someone handed him the scroll of Isaiah, uh, the prophet of the Old Testament, um, whose words throughout promised the coming kingdom and the coming king. And Jesus read from Isaiah for, um, this is what he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that was his mandate. He was anointed to, um, to speak and to serve the poor. So that is the kingdom of God right from the very start. Um, I just wanted to also uh, say, who are the poor? When Jeff called us and said, would you just share a little bit about how you sort of feel like the people on the street are part of the kingdom of God? 
who are the poor. Um, I want to just say also from Luke 6, 20 and 21, blessed are you who are poor. Jesus is addressing his disciples at this point. But he's saying, blessed are you who are poor. That's definitely not the mandate of our society, is it? It's like we want to be able to earn as much money and have all the perks. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. This was the message that Jesus carried throughout his ministry and the people that he addressed. Who are the people who are, the, who are on the streets of Langley, Surrey, Vancouver? People like me and you. People who have lost the ability to find enough of what they need to survive. Safe food, safe drinking water, safe shelter, clothing, a voice for change, someone to encourage them and love them and give them hope and in the 15 years 15 some odd years of working on the care bus I have met people who are on the street who were CEOs of companies who were lawyers who were graduates from uh, universities hard working men and women becoming who have become injured on the job and workman's compensation runs out. They no longer can purchase uh, something that will help their pain, so they go to the street. So there are people like you and me, and, and I think that um, it's really important to know that God in his mercy has placed us in a position where we can share our talents with people on the street. I have one story. This is about a volunteer. So this young uh, friend of my daughter's wanted to know what uh, street ministry was and like, what was this all about? So he came with me one time. I was on the care bus and he was out with the volunteer team. Anyway, he came to me and he said, he's not from a Christian home, knows absolutely nothing about the gospel, but wanted to volunteer. And he said, I said, oh, uh, and what are you up to? Like, what, what are you doing with the volunteer team? He said, well, I'm not exactly sure. But can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, uh, what's a prayer request? And so he had been given the clipboard and to go around and ask people if they had anything that they wanted us to pray for. And at the end of the night, everybody gets together, including all the street people who want to, and they're prayed for. Um, so you can understand that even people who go and just show up, uh, you know, can learn a lot about about the Lord, so that is a, that's a really encouraging thing. Um, yeah, I think that's good for now. I'm just going to turn it over. I've just been so amazed with Mariah and uh, her interest in uh, in the working with the poor. So I started out this school year with setting a spiritual goal with the focus on somehow loving on the homeless. I initially hoped to serve in Vancouver because that is where I was most aware of people being in need. Um, but then I learned about Langley Outreach because there was an information session at the NLCC Walnut Grove campus. I already knew Tom because he was my Sunday school teacher in grade four. So after hearing about what Langley Outreach does and that there was a need, for most to serve most Sundays of the month. My mom and I signed up and we've been participating fairly regularly since March. The first Sunday we arrived, we didn't really know what to expect, but it was super fun and we had we made 10 batches of cookies. And 
We got to meet lots of other people while we were helping bag desserts and wash dishes and many other things. Um, and there's something that we haven't done yet, which is serving the food to the people um, out of the Friends of Langley Vineyard Church, which is where they help serve out of. And my mom and I plan to do that soon. But more, the more behind-the-scenes job of prepping the food and washing the dishes, dishes is just as important. So after school, I have made um, a pamphlet that gives lots of information about it and how you can help. So it's at the back table over there if you want to, and there if you want to help. And there's contact information on the back. Thank you so much, you guys. Tom and Darlene. Um, Darlene, is over, she oversees our coffee ministry, so if you drink good coffee and, and enjoy it, uh, she's the one to thank for that. With throughout our, she gives leadership to our teams, and Tom uh, heads our volunteer breakfast every single week. Our volunteers eat like kings and queens here, so thank you guys. But it's so cool to hear like your heart for the poor and the marginalized who are in need, and thank you for defining that so well, Darlene. And Mariah, so good. We need to learn so much from you and what your heart um, for the marginalized is as well, and we so appreciate that. Where do we go from here? What does this look like for us? I don't know. Um, I, I don't have a list of, of things that we can do and we will do. Um, I want to just ask us, though, how can we put our lives more in touch with those who are in need, with those who have been maybe harshly affected by the hardness and the difficulties of this world? One of the things that I love that we do is that we help families in need in this school. So we have a, a relationship set up with the principal here that if there's a family in need, uh, they don't have the resources here to help them, and so they will call us as a church, and we have never left a family in need yet. Um, don't know their stories. We get to meet them. We don't ask uh, their life details. We just give them gift cards freely responsibly we steward well but we steward with generosity so that we can help people maybe get to the next payday or help put a bit more food in their cupboards but we help in this and I'm so proud of us that we are a part of that so if you didn't know we did that that's where part of our giving goes is towards helping people who are in need we do other things like Langley outreach like we talked about maybe at Christmas time we help but maybe there's other things we can do there's people in our church who go into Matsqui to do prison visitation Maybe something like that would be on your heart that you want to go and help and just bring encouragement to people who need it there. Maybe there's a place where you can um, go down and help with Langley Outreach. Mariah's made some beautiful pamphlets. You can read more about that and how to get involved. There's another tangible way as well, and that is to sign up through our Move Camp. Um, now, you might think, well, how does Move Camp fit in with serving the poor and the marginalized? There are a lot of families who come who are in need. Um, who maybe get some help to come to camp as well, but who are in need of people just to be kind to them and be relational and share stories and share their life with them for a week. This is the most practical of ways that we can do this. And we are hoping that many people from uh, Yorkson here sign up to help because we're going to have a lot of kids here the first week of July and we really need that. Maybe it's practicing hospitality in your home. Maybe it's using your talents and gifts in other ways that can help people who are in need. But maybe today we just leave and we say, God, how is it that you want me to use the talents, the gifts and things that you've given me and how I'm wired in order to go out and bless the world instead of just hoarding and making my world bigger? Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for another description this morning of what the kingdom of God looks like. Thank you, Jesus, that you went and ministered to the poor all around you. The poor were such a big part of your ministry. And thank you, Father, for sending your Son to us who, in a spiritual sense, are all poor and who need someone to save us. And through your Son coming and dying on the cross, who made himself poor, have made us uh, incomparably rich because of your goodness and grace in our lives. And so, God, we say thank you for this. And we also ask, Holy Spirit, that you would put things in our minds, both individuals and as a church, that we would be able to go and to bless people with what you have given to us. And so, God, let us think about this. Would you turn our hearts and orientate us towards those in need more this morning? We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.